Well, if you have that Bible still, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we are going to be in chapter 4, verses 10 through 23 this morning, which is going to be on page 982 if you're using one of those black ESV ones. And today we are actually coming to the end of our study in the book of Philippians. Right? We're going to be finishing up this letter in which we began walking through um, back in July, I believe, uh, the first Sunday in July. And, and over the, the, those several months, right, we've been simply walking through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is really the predominant way that we teach the Bible here at Carson Valley Bible. You know, so if, if you're new or visiting, um, we're, you know, we're not just a Bible church in name, but really at the core of all that we do, we want to be driven by the Word of God. And so we want to just walk through every line of Scripture in order to rightly understand who God is and what He's done. And even though it's okay to maybe, you know, go back and forth between different texts, the best way for all of us to actually learn all of the counsel of the Word of God is to walk through it line by line, chapter by chapter. And so as we've been walking through this letter, I'd remind you that Paul was writing to a church that's about 10 years old at the time. It's a church in which the actual apostle Paul planted on one of his, his first missionary journeys. And Paul was writing back to them, even though he's imprisoned in Rome at this moment, he's writing back to this young church, right? These young Christians, right? Everybody in the church is young. The oldest Christian is about 10 years old as a Christian, Right? So they're, they're really trying to figure out still a lot of the ways of how do we walk with Christ? Right? How do we honor him? What does it mean to be a Christian? And Paul has been simply walking through a lot of those elements. A lot of those elements. And just been reminding these Christians of some wonderful truths about when they understood who Jesus was and what he had done for them on the cross. All of what that entails now. And as we come to the end, as with many letters not just biblical letters, but other letters by, by people who deeply care about a church or care about just people that are important to them, you try to save the best for last, right? Like what are the final words in which you want to communicate to someone are often some of the most important. And that is simply also the case for us this morning. As we walk through these, right, these last uh, encouragements, these last commands of Paul, they speak to some of the most important aspects of walking with Christ. And specifically, what Paul is going to be talking about today, and you can see it just from the title of my sermon, is what does contentment look like for a Christian? What does contentment look like for humanity? What does it look like to be satisfied? What does it look like to not be buried in anxiety or buried in some of these these other emotional aspects that seem to take our hearts captive, what would it actually look like to be content in Christ? Or what does it look like for contentment in anybody? Now hear me on this, because I, I believe this is true, that for even a church our size, many of us are coming in with all kinds of different contentment this morning. What we either find ourselves content in or what we find ourselves discontent in. When you woke up this morning, right, when you, and hopefully, you know, you woke up fresh with that extra hour of sleep. <laughs> yes, I feel like, laugh. yeah, that didn't happen. I know, Levi woke up at 5 a.m. still. He didn't care. Um, when you woke up, though, and when you looked in the mirror this morning, what were those first thoughts that came into your head? 
what are the burdens that you still carried throughout the night? What are the things that are, if you're just honest with yourself, the things that are deep within you, right? Deep within your soul, deep within your heart that you still feel discontent about, right? When you look in the mirror and you go, I'm not satisfied in where God has me in this. That could be, maybe you woke up and you're not satisfied in that, this very house that you're living in. Amen. I wish I was somewhere else. Maybe it's the person that you woke up with. Maybe it's your spouse or your son. I thought at this point in my life that I'd be married. Or maybe you're thinking at this point in my life, the person that I am married to, I thought my marriage would look different than what it is. And it could be just this raw, honest evaluation of what you're actually thinking in those moments. Maybe it's not a spouse, but maybe it's some other relationship. Maybe you thought your relationship with your kids would be better than it is. Maybe you thought you would have kids and you don't. Right? Maybe it's nothing to do with relationships. Maybe it's just financial. Right? You're, you're waking up with just this burden of money that's always on your mind. Whether maybe you're, you're feeling like, I never have enough. Those bills keep piling up and I feel like I can never get ahead. Or maybe you, every time it seems like you try to get ahead or something, right? you get that pay raise that you've been working hard for. All of a sudden, something happens in your life, maybe a health reason or, or something else, where all of a sudden all of that new wealth in which you were hoping would get you ahead is being zapped to something that was unexpected. Or maybe it's something else altogether, because I know that we're all coming in with all different reasons or all different temptations to be discontent with where God has us. Maybe it's something altogether different. But whatever it is in your life, maybe it's those things that you daydream about. And you probably never would say this out loud, but you daydream and go, if I just had this, then I would be pretty happy, right? If I just had this going on in my life, then everything would be good. Now, what we're going to be seeing today in these last words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi is I think... Paul actually realizing that this takes place in every human heart, but for a Christian, there's a way to approach those thoughts or those situations in our lives, that there's a way to actually navigate those waters that is altogether different than how the world offers a solution to that, right? Because the world's solution is simply, well, get it, right? Do what you got to do, right? If you need to make more money, then give everything to the idol of making money, Right? If, you, if you're not happy with your spouse, get a new spouse. Right? The world says, just, just do it. But never thinking through of, okay, what does it mean to, for me to honor Christ or me to trust him in those moments? Of why does he have me in certain seasons? And really the answer that Paul's going to be giving us that I'm going to be unpacking for us this morning is that there's a contentment that goes beyond just situations. It's a gospel contentment. It's a gospel contentment that's satisfied in a person, not in a circumstance. And it's a gospel contentment that I really want. Truly, I really want. Because I know, and I think I'm not alone in the room in this, is I can easily get onto that that treadmill of contentment or worldly satisfaction and go, all right, I'll run the race, right? I'll, I'll jump onto whatever the world is telling me. This will make you happy. But those are moving goalposts constantly, aren't they? Right? You get one thing, and then you find out that, oh, that wasn't it. Like that, it was nice. Maybe, maybe it, it satisfied something for 
a season in life, but you realize there's something deeper than that. And I want to get off the treadmill. Like, I don't want to be constantly running and pursuing and never going anywhere. Paul is saying there's a gospel contentment. There's a satisfaction in this life that goes beyond circumstances. And he, and he says it in a way that he calls it basically a secret. But it's a secret that he doesn't want to stay one. right? That he, he puts in for all of us to be able to read and understand and embrace today. That even though the church in Philippi, right, was 2,000 plus years ago for us, those truths apply to us just as much as they did to them as they, as they should for us now. And that's what I want to look at this Sunday. Now, as always, I want to take one more moment just to pray because I know that even as I start talking about discontentment, right, all of those, those different things, those different things that, that flood our minds and our hearts, right? They're trying to come up and go, no, 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 no. He's not talking to you, right? He's not talking about what's going on in your life. He's talking about somebody else. And I think what we need is for all of us just to pray that the word of God would work in our lives this morning through his word. So if you could, just pray for me as I pray for you, and then we'll jump into the text. Well, Father, once again, I, am, I know that anything good that comes is a gift from you. And God, I know because your word tells us that we desperately need your work, Spirit, to illuminate the truths of the very words that we're going to read in a second. Where they not only, we recognize the the context in which they were written in, but we also realize the timeliness of them for us to read through today. That we don't believe in coincidences, Lord. That we believe that you have sovereignly governed us to be in the room this morning. To walk through these words of scripture. Because we desperately need them. And God, I'm thankful that we can stand upon your truth in your word for your glory. And it's to your mighty and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And I'm just going to read through the end of the chapter. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory and forever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. 
yeah, we, we say thanks be to God after we read the Bible because we're thankful for God's word. Now, now, Paul begins this section, church, by talking about how thankful he is for this, this Philippian church and the revived concern that they've had for him. Now, if you jump down to verse 15, he actually gives some context to what he's talking about. And he basically explains that he's talking about how this church gave financially to support the work of Paul and his ministry of, of planting churches and raising up pastors in that first century. And so Paul is reminding them of how thankful that he is that this church would do that. And, he, and here's what you have to know about this church. is They were not by any means historically a wealthy church. So any money that they actually gave, this gift that they sent with Epaphroditus to be delivered to Paul which was historically was probably used for Paul to be able to pay his house arrest, right? So he was able to actually write these letters. It was the, what he needed to be able to do the work of ministry even while being imprisoned. Paul is saying, I'm thankful for you because anything that you gave, it came at great cost because you didn't have abundance. You were in need as a church. And so I'm thanking you. But he also wants to be incredibly clear about why he is thanking them or what is motivating when it comes to their giving to him. And he's being clear because Paul and, and I think every pastor, every church leader knows that when you talk about money in the church, it can get awkward at times, right? It can, it can become unclear at times. You know, I've, I've spent a, a number of times uh, trying to teach people what the Word of God says about money. And, and truthfully, as Americans, we don't like when somebody tells us what to do with our money. We don't. And, and even though Paul is obviously not talking to Americans at this point, he knows that the human heart is tempted to either hoard or to spend more than they actually have to give away. That's something that's maybe not responsible and so Paul's trying to be very clear because he knows that money or the use of money is very reflective of where our hearts are at. Really, what you think about money comes from the deepest parts of your soul. The deepest parts of your soul. And so when Paul starts talking about money, right, and he starts talking about this gift that this church has given them, it leads to this conversation about contentment, doesn't it? Because contentment and money often go hand in hand. In fact, the author of Hebrews, he would say this in Hebrews 13.5. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it to you. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, speaking of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Paul, I believe, like the author of Hebrews, he's saying, all right, if we're going to talk about money, I also have to talk about contentment. And if I'm talking about contentment and I'm talking about money, I'm really going to have to tie this all into what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Because truthfully, these all go hand in hand. And so with that backdrop of contentment and the gift that, that this church was giving Paul, Paul wants to be very clear on what does the heart look like? What does a heart look like that will actually want to worship God with our money? And so starting at verse 11, he starts unpacking this secret of contentment, if you will. The secret of contentment. Let me go ahead and just read verses 11 through 12 again, and then I want to point out a few things. 
He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Two things I want to point out to you guys in those two verses. The first is in both 11 and 12. Paul makes mention that being content is something that he has learned. Something that he has learned. Which should be of great news for us this morning. Right? Because when I was explaining to you all of the ways that we can find ourselves being discontent, based off of maybe just worldly or superficial things, but certainly things that are important to us, you would say, you know what, Pastor? I don't think I'm content. I think when I look in the mirror that I have a lot of things that I'm discontent about, and it's dominating my life. Well, here's the good news for us. Paul's saying contentment is something that you learn. It's something that God teaches you. It's not something that you just wake up one night, maybe the the day you became a Christian, and go, I am fully content in Christ. I don't have any worries about anything else anymore. No, Paul is saying, Jesus taught me these things. The Apostle Paul, I had to learn this. You know, we think of Paul being this super Christian, right? This this amazing guy who can say, you know, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And yet Paul here is saying, I had to learn, though, to be content. I had to learn to be content in all these situations. Which reminds us of what's the promise that God gives every Christian about sanctification. Something that Paul said at the beginning of this letter in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. When Paul says, if God has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? So if you're not content this morning... Or when you, when you think about what it looks like to be content, you go, I don't, I'm not that every day. I'm not that every hour. Well, you're in good company because that's me too. And go, this is something that we learn. This is something that we learn as we walk with Christ, as we walk through different seasons of life or trials of life. Paul's saying, you can learn to be content. It's something that God teaches you. It's part of, if we use the theological word, it's part of our sanctification where we actually learn and grow in Christ. So take heart, Christian, that God is not finished with you. That there may be things in your life that you know that you don't want to be enslaved by. You don't want to always be thinking about. God is not done with you. And that should be good news. He's not done with your relationships. He's not done with your finances. He's not done with whatever reason you feel like you, can, you have to draw away or not trust God. He's saying, trust me. I can teach you what it means to be content. Which brings me to that second observation. Is Paul makes it absolutely clear that his contentment is not based off his circumstances, right? He's not saying, you know, when things finally got better, then I learned how to be satisfied in Christ. No, he says, right, when I've, when I've been brought low, right, when I've been hungry. But yet he also says the opposite, right? He also says when I've abounded or when I've been full. Both of those seasons actually taught me what it looks to be content. It wasn't as if once I got to where I thought I needed to go, once maybe I was hungry but then became full, then I go, that was it. I just, I just needed to get the right things in order. And Paul's saying even when I had the right things in order from a physical standpoint, 
I still had to learn contentment in that season. So God uses different circumstances, right? Different seasons of our life. Maybe difficult seasons of being in need. Maybe seasons of being in abundance. Both of which, church, God will use to teach us that our only hope is in Him. Our only contentment is in Him. Which is really the, that whole drumbeat of the whole letter, right? right? It's something I've been talking about for those eight weeks. We've been saying that to not find your joy, to not find your contentment in things of this world or circumstances of your life, right? The joy of, or the, the point of the Christian life is not to be happy, right? Because happy, and, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with trying to be happy, but being happy is often tied, tied to your happenings, right? To those circumstances. And Paul is saying, no, no, I want to go beyond that. I want to give you a hope and a joy that is not anchored to simply what is going on in your life, whether it be good or bad. Or as one pastor said, Paul isn't preoccupied with his situation, but he is preoccupied with his Savior. That is good news for us. And really, I think that's where Paul goes as he says, I want to show you then what that secret of contentment is. Look at your Bibles at verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is a wonderful verse, church. I encourage you to highlight it. If you're a person who likes to mark up their Bible, mark this up. And I would imagine that for many of you, this is probably not the first time that you've actually heard that verse before. That you can do all things through him who strengthens you or strengthens me. But... I would guess this might be the first time that you've actually heard that verse in context. And you're, you're realizing that verse has to do with contentment rather than something else. Because truthfully, this verse is probably one of the most misused verses in all of the Bible. So let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you are a Christian, you can do anything. You can do anything that God is going to somehow give you supernatural strength or ability to accomplish a certain task. That's not what Paul is talking about in this moment. Right? My first exposure to this verse, I'll, I'll tell you guys a quick story, is I, was, I can't remember exactly how old I was. I was probably in middle school, though. And there was an event going on at Douglas High School, the high school here in the Valley. And it was basically a group of bodybuilders that were coming to do this demonstration of their power. I don't know if any of you guys remember this. I, th- I don't know if their name were like the power train or power team, but basically it was these group of bodybuilders who were wanting to demonstrate their strength by like breaking ice over their heads or, you know, tearing up a phone book with their bare hands. And every time they would do something, they would quote this verse. They would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then they would tear the phone book in hand. Now you can imagine me as a middle schooler going home and not being able to do the same thing. Because that's not what Paul is talking about. Right? He's not talking about having some kind of supernatural ability to do anything that you want. And truth be told, if I tried to use this to do that, here's what would happen. This is how I would use it. I would go golfing. I'm not a good golfer. And so when I would tee off, what would I do? I would, I would yell out this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would tee off. And you know what would happen? Probably every person on that golf course, and, and likely a few cars driving by, would become atheists. 
Because that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about having the supernatural ability to do whatever you want. So what is Paul talking about? What is he talking about? It means that you can be content in any situation that you find yourself in because you have a God who is there and knows and will encourage and strengthen you amidst it. In the Greek, it could be easily rendered instead of that word through that we have in our English Bibles. Um, it could be in also, just the word in, I-N. And so it could read in verse 13, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about this is driving to your communion with God. The strengthening that you need is about abiding in God. And so what are all those things that Paul's talking about? What are these all things? Well, what has Paul been saying throughout the letter? That you can have joy in him. Right? That you can have unity in him. That you can find purpose in him. No matter what situation you find yourself going through, you have a God who knows and has a God to say, I am with you always. If you are a Christian and you are in me, there is good news for you. So church, no matter where God has you right now, you can be satisfied in him. Not because your circumstance is going to change. Not because all of a sudden you're going to find all of the money that you need or those relationships are automatically going to be restored restored to what you desire them to be. But you can be satisfied and content in Christ because you have a God who will strengthen and power and encourage you amidst it. You go, I know. I know what you're going through. And I deeply, God's in the business of restoration. That's why we're all here. But God will always do things according to our need. That's why if you jump down to verse 19, Paul kind of doubles down on this idea. And he says, my, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is really good news. That means, church, guess what? Your God is not a stingy God. It means that your God actually knows your needs. And it's a God who will supply every need of yours. Take note, it doesn't say he's going to supply every greed of yours, right? Or every want of yours, but every need of yours. And he will do it not in a penny-pincher way, right? He's not going to give you the bare minimum. Actually, it says he's going to do it according to his riches. Not out of his riches, but according to. And here's why that's that's a difference that needs to be noted. Because God always does things according to who he is, And if God is a good and gracious and merciful God, he does things according to that nature, according to his riches. And he gives the best. He gives the best when it comes to that. And what's the best example we have of that? Our salvation, right? Our salvation when we were sinners who had no way of getting right with God because of the ways that we had turned our back, each and every one of us. The Bible says there is, we are all unrighteous. No one is righteous, not even one. And what did God do? Did he just do the bare minimum in order to make us clean again? No, he went all out. He gave his only begotten son. He sent his son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserved. He went all out. He went according to his riches. 
And so when you became a Christian, right, when you believed that you were that sinner in need of a Savior, when you understood that, yeah, I was that, I'm the one who turned my back. Maybe I didn't, I didn't realize it intentionally at the moment, but I did it. I wasn't perfect. And so when you believed and you trusted, right, and you turned from those sins and you turned to Christ, the Bible says that you were also adopted by God. Not just saved, but adopted. He didn't have to do that. But God's salvation is in accordance with who he is. It's in accordance with his riches. And so if you're not a Christian here today, one is, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you feel comfortable coming here. You know, we're not going to do anything weird to you intentionally. We want you to know Christ. But I've I got to tell you that your pursuit in this life, there is nothing that's going to give you the contentment in which you're looking for outside of Christ. No situation is going to ultimately satisfy the deep parts of your soul that are longing in and need. And so I encourage you maybe to get off that treadmill. Right? And, and see the gospel contentment that we have in Christ. Because that gospel contentment strengthens us. It gives us the ability to go beyond our circumstances and say, I can trust you. I can be joyful in you in all circumstances. I can be joyful and content because I know of my position in you. If you're a Christian, it means that you are a son or you are a daughter of the Most High King. One that has every resource available to him, and he wants to use that for his glory and your joy. And he pours that out. But ultimately, we get him. That's the point, is we're getting him. So we're not going to him so he would give us something. We go to him because we get him. And then we can say, come what may, whether it's hunger, right, or feasting, scarcity, or riches. My contentment, then, is rooted in Christ and not anything else. And God is teaching that to you. He is teaching that to me, church, day by day. It's something that we have to learn. And so you might be in a season of your life right now that you never wanted to be in. And it's not because God has abandoned you. He's actually right there with you. But he's saying, I need you to trust me more than you trust that the grass is greener on the other side. I need you to trust me that even if that, this circumstance never changes, that you have me. That I am the secret to your contentment. That you get me. Now, for the rest of this text, I believe that Paul is simply showing us then what gospel contentment then leads to practically. What does it actually do for this church when they understand that their joy, that contentment is found in Christ and Christ alone? Well, first, it leads to radical generosity because you're actually free from the love of money. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. Where Paul makes mention of that financial gift that they sent him with Epaphroditus. And Paul makes mention of this because it's so connected to their identity in Christ. Because although, here's the truth, although I don't like talking about money, other people don't like talking about money, the Bible and Jesus does not share that same reservation as I do. It goes all out at it. And let me just read for you two texts. One from Jesus and another one from Paul. The first one is from Jesus in Matthew 6. When he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then jump down. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And money. Or let me show you Paul from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, when he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, God knows how much money is going to be a tempter to be a master to us. And that's why the Bible, Jesus talks about it all the time. So God knows that it's not a matter of how much, right? It doesn't matter if there's a lot of money in your bank account or a little money in your bank account. A lot of money in your pocket or a little amount of money. Both Jesus and Paul do not give caveats to this only goes to the poor. This only goes to the rich. It goes to people like you and I. And Paul is saying here to the Philippian church, if you jump back to Philippians, that he's thankful for the gift that they've given him because it's an indication of how God has actually been moving in their hearts. Look at verse 17, if you will. When he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It's about what God is doing in your life that Paul acknowledges. Right? He even makes it abundantly clear. It's not about the money. It's not about what you've given me. It's not about the amount. It's about your heart. And I can see that when you are giving, right, when you are you're living a generous life and you want to give back to all, the, because God has given you so much in abundance. Because we're all rich. We really are. He's saying it's an indication of your heart, and I just want to encourage you in that. Paul even equates the offering in verse 18 to a fragrant offering. A picture in the Old Testament of an act of worship. And Paul says it's pleasing to who, church? Verse 18. To God. Paul's not talking about himself. Listen, you don't give to the church or you don't give to anybody for that matter. It doesn't have to be the church. But you don't give it for their sake primarily. You give it as an act of worship and saying, you've entrusted this amount of money to me And I am going to be able to give and live without the bounds of that being my master. So any time that you give money, whether, please don't hear me. This is not me trying to talk about giving to the church. This is just you seeing that you have been entrusted with a certain amount of money. And God is saying, I want you to use that money that I'm trusting you to worship me. To worship me. Giving is an act of worship. God is after our hearts. He's not after a dollar. God doesn't need our money. You guys know that, right? He's the king of kings. But he knows that our hearts are tempted to obey a master of money rather than a master of him. And here's why I believe this is so important to tie to gospel contentment. is because the only way that that transformation ever happens in your heart, the only way that you can ever go from instead of saying, this is mine, this is about me, to saying, no, 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 this is, even what I have is not about me, and it's just about the one who's given it to me. The only way that can happen, church, is if you have deep gospel contentment in your life. When you can say, I don't want to worship money. I want to give money. I want to leverage money. 
I want to be faithful to whatever God has given to me. And Jesus says, if you've been faithful with little, you can be faithful with much. It's about being simply a Christian who wants to worship God in all of their life. It's not just worship God in obedience to loving your neighbor as yourself. But it's also loving God by saying, I'm not going to let money be a God. Or I'm not going to say, God, you can be involved in all of my life, right? You can even be involved in my bedroom and what happens there. But when it comes to my wallet, you have no say. Now, the Christian goes, no, 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 I, I know that's a temptation. But I want to say, no, no, it all belongs to you. It's about your heart. And by the way, this is why I'm so thankful that each and every time that we get a financial report, and those are available if you want at the Connect desk of how we use and spend money, is you'll see that this church gives above and beyond what our needs are. It's not just looking to, hey, how can we do the bare minimum? How can we just make budget? It's going, no, it's not about that. I want to give in accordance to me worshiping. And so as my time here as the pastor of Carson Valley Bible, you know, we've been doing really well on our finances. And I thank God because it means and it indicates at least for, for many of us that the worship of God is getting into those deep crevices of our soul where we want to let money be a, a, a separate thing. And we're saying, no, no, no. If the gospel is going to impact me, if it's going to truly impact all of my life, this even includes my giving. And so I'm so thankful for this church and the way that they've been, you guys have been, demonstrating your love and, and desire for gospel contentment by the way that you worship God with your money. Now, the second way that I think gospel contentment leads to in this text is it says that gospel contentment leads to basically a fellowship with God and his people. To fellowship with God and his people. Look down at verse 21. Where Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with you greet you. Paul is saying, when you have gospel contentment, you actually can now respond, not just by giving to the church, but actually being the church. That you are greeting saints. You are greeting every single person in the name of God. And here's why that's so radical. You know, we, we tend to, to not see just the, the starkness of what Paul is getting at in this moment. Because he lived in a time, and maybe it's not so different actually, where people like to immediately classify and judge people based off of who they are, what they look like, or maybe in our context, who they voted for. And Paul is saying, greet every saint. Because you know what happens when you have deep gospel contentment? Is all of those walls of hostility, all of those walls of separation get broken down. Go like, I'm not getting my satisfaction on, on you or what tribe I find myself in or if everybody agrees with me on everything. I get my satisfaction, my contentment in my Lord. And because of that, I actually can greet everyone because everyone's in need of Christ just as much as I am. So greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Every saint. That's what gospel contentment leads to. And he he makes mention that even in verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, which would have been magnificent. That Caesar's household was at this point the most powerful place on earth. And Paul is saying that there are Christians there. Likely the guards in which who were guarding Paul and his imprisonment became Christians and were taking the message of the gospel back to Caesar's palace, meaning that the cleaners right, were getting saved, right? the other personnel, maybe the cooks, 
were getting saved, that there was this gospel revival happening in Caesar's household. Now, there's no indication that maybe that Caesar himself or some of those people were becoming Christians at this point. But the word of God, the goodness of what Jesus had done for them was reaching everybody in the world that thought that they were enslaved to somebody else. And so they're saying, these new believers are greeting you. They're standing with you. They're praying for you. That's what gospel contentment leads to. And lastly, gospel contentment leads to the pursuit and knowledge of the glory of God forever. I skipped it, but if you look back to verse 20, and this is where I want to end, church, is Paul kind of gives a doxology of sorts. This is where Paul almost sums up everything in which he has been saying to this church right now. It's basically this this summary thesis statement of the whole book of Philippians. And as we look back, and I know many of you were here for the whole series. Many of you have come midway through it. But if we were just to look back on all the different areas in which Paul has been reminding these Christians, reminding them of where they started, right? Reminding them of their work and confidence in God, reminding them of their hope, reminding them of when things got, went wrong or when that anxiety rose in their hearts. They had a father they could go to in prayer. Or reminding them that even their disagreements could be settled in the war. Reminding them, as we just saw, that they could be free from the love of money. They could be content in Christ in all situations because he strengthens you. And churches, we look back on all of those themes That joy in which Paul has been saying, find your joy in Christ, no matter what. Verse 20, I think, is really the only way that I know how to end this sermon. It's by simply saying to our God, and Father be glory. Right? Forever and ever, amen. Church, the Christian life is, is about grace, right? We see, we see grace throughout the Christian life, and Paul even says that in verse 23. But in verse 20, we see what gospel contentment leads to. It's the pursuit of him. It's the pursuit of the glory of him. And so as we walk out of these doors today, right, and we want to pursue that gospel contentment in which we've just talked about for the last 40 or so minutes, we can do that in him Because he is a father who has not given up on any single one of us. So let me read it one more time and then I'll close in prayer. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, I I don't know what else to say besides how thankful I am for your word. How thankful I am that we can have this contentment in which I want. But I know it comes through you and by you and in you. And Father, I'm thankful that you're a God who encourages Christians like me, encourages Christians like us to know that we can... We can follow you as imperfectly as it may seem at times that you never are done with us. You never write us off. That there's grace from beginning to the end and is your glory as our goal we can go to. It's not about us, Lord. It's about you.
So it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.